Well, turn with me, if you would, in the Bible to the book of 1 John, as we are continuing this evening our series through the epistle of 1 John. We'll be in chapter 2, once again this evening, looking at verses 2 through 14. First John chapter 2, and starting in verse 12, down to verse 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. It seems the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let's go to him once again this evening and ask for his help. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage, for these few short words in the first epistle of John. We pray that we would be illumined by your Holy Spirit to see what he inspired the apostle to write these 2,000 years ago. May we see more of you and what you have done for us in Jesus as a result. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, as you'll remember, perhaps from our, our, our uh, first chapter and a half going through the book of 1 John, there are a lot of cycles throughout the book. And that John is not one to go in a logical sequence, in a logical order, as we would perhaps think of it, especially as you think of Paul, one thing leading to another, leading to another, with certain, of course, asides and things off on the trail that he gets to in the meantime. John, on the other hand, tends to go through these cycles, to go through these circles of thought. And perhaps nowhere is that more evident than here in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, where he intentionally is cycling through these three things, really these three groups as he identifies them in our text. And there's been a lot of uh, debate, a lot of consideration by commentators as to exactly who these three groups represent. Is John just speaking to children, and then just speaking to young men, and then just speaking to fathers? And that's an interpretation that has some history in the church, certainly. But I think that perhaps there's a better way of looking at this. That John, throughout this first epistle, refers to all of his readers as his children. He has this sense in his head of being essentially a spiritual father. We could even say a spiritual grandfather at this point as he comes to the end of his life. And he is writing to these people who are dealing with the pain and the confusion that comes with people who are walking away from the faith. People who are coming in and teaching wrong things about Jesus Christ and what it means to be in him. People who are leaving, who they thought were there with them, believing the same things, walking alongside them as they have been, perhaps from the beginning of the church here in these areas of Asia Minor. And so it seems that once again, John is speaking to all of these people as children. That's what he means when you see children popping up here in our passage this evening. And really, young men and fathers is a further description of these children. I realize that seems strange to us as we come into this text. We don't often refer to children that call those same children young men and fathers. But it seems that we could think of this perhaps as John saying, my children, that is the young men and the fathers, those who are the old and the young, those who are the strong and the wise. That This is just an ancient way. It's John's way of basically identifying all of the people of God under these headings. That all the blessings that he is going to tell them about and remind them that they have in Jesus Christ are true for each and every single person who is listening to him. That these are things that are true for each and every single believer who abides in the light, even as we've already heard in verse 10 last Lord's Day evening. As one commentator has said, what he is doing really here is issuing a trumpet call 
summoning all the faithful to a recognition of their real and true position before God. And that's what we'll see this evening. John is someone who has been doing this for a while, to put it mildly. He has been a disciple of Jesus Christ. Of course, before that, he was someone who grew up understanding the Torah, understanding the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, or the Bible, as they just called it then, the Scriptures. He has spent three years as Christ's disciple, living with him, learning from him, interacting with him, and then he's been an apostle of Jesus Christ for decades. He's gone all over the place. He's seen all kinds of different things. He's talked to a lot of different people. He's been in a lot of different churches, a lot of different regions, dealing with a lot of different problems. And John knows exactly what these people need to hear. John knows exactly what we ourselves need to hear even this evening. John recognizes that these people are suffering, that they are questioning, that they are doubting, that they are wondering. And he's about to, as we see in verse 15, tell them, do not love the world or the things in the world. He's about to get there. He's about to give them that command, as we'll see next time. But before he does that, he wants to make sure that we're all on the same page here. Remember, this is a book that's meant to give us assurance in the faith. And John is not trying to come here and just say, all you have to do is not love the world or the things in the world, and then you'll be saved. Then you'll have this wonderful position before God. He wants to remind us of the reason why we should not love the world or the things in the world. And he wants to give us a wonderful, glorious vision of God and the gospel as a reason for not loving the world. And so we'll see the three blessings he really identifies here in our text this evening, starting with the first blessing of forgiveness. You'll notice he begins that way in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now he's coming in here and he's saying this in light of the fact that he's already told them about the old commandment that's also new, of the fact that they should love one another, And he's reminding them now of what it means that Jesus has loved them, that God the Father has loved them and gave them his Son as their Savior. And it starts out with sin. Sins are forgiven. John is once again not acting, not writing as if his listeners or anyone in this world can be without sin. He recognizes the reality of it. He recognizes that it exists, and it exists within us, something that we ourselves recognize as well if we're honest with ourselves. He is not calling the children to perfection in order to gain Christ, but he's telling them that Christ has already acted and dealt with their sin. Sin is what makes salvation and the gospel necessary in the first place. It's what makes the uh, perfect life and substitutionary death and resurrection of Christ necessary for sinners, sinners like you and like me. And John is reminding these people who are listening to him in Asia Minor That God has dealt with sin. Definitively and finally in Jesus Christ. He's reminding us, even as we are tempted by many of the same things that they're tempted by, not perhaps the same individuals, we would say, or even the exact same teachings that are causing problems in this region of what we now call Turkey. But that we're still tempted to wonder about things. We're still tempted to believe the wrong things about God and about Jesus, to confess the wrong things, to even wonder, is this the truth? And how can this be the truth if people are walking away from it? People that we know, people that we love, people that we've walked with side by side in the Christian life, thinking that they believe the exact same thing we do, and before you know it, they've walked away. That's a cause of intense suffering, not physical suffering, perhaps, not 
overt persecution, but the suffering that's emotional, that's mental anguish that comes from that. And so he wants to remind these believers, these little children, that their sins are forgiven. Notice in verse 12 and in these other places in verses 12 through 14, this word translated in the ESV as because. Now there's a couple ways you could take that word in the Greek. It could be either because these things are true or I'm writing you that these things are true. And you might wonder, well, what's the difference here? Are we just splitting hairs? Well, it's basically the difference between John saying, I'm writing to you because this is already true, that you already know it, and I'm reminding you of these things. I'm writing to tell you that this is true, and perhaps this is you hearing it for the first time. I think he's doing the former. He wants to remind these believers, these brothers and sisters, some of whom he probably knows and some of whom he probably doesn't know, of what their position is in Jesus Christ before God. He wants to write to them because their sins are forgiven. That they are not just sinners, but forgiven sinners. And perhaps that's something that we should dwell on a little bit more during the course of our Christian life. We are pretty good at understanding, especially as Reformed people, that sin is real. We confess these sort of things. We recognize the fact that even as believers, that we are still sinners. But sometimes perhaps it's good to place an equal emphasis on the fact that we are forgiven sinners. That we are sinners, sure, that there's nothing within us that could lead God to love us on its own. That we could not earn the way to salvation, we could not enter into the tent of the Lord, even as we heard this morning, but that through Jesus Christ our sins are forgiven. That if you're trusting him here this evening, certainly you have failed to keep his law this week. You have failed to do the things that you ought to have done, and you have done many things that you ought not to have done. Everyone in this room has. Because everyone in this room is a sinner, but everyone in this room who is believing in Jesus Christ is a forgiven sinner. That this is the comfort, this is the assurance that John brings to those who are listening to him. And why are they forgiven? Why are their sins forgiven? Well, it's very clear there in verse 12, for his name's sake. For his name's sake. Really, his name is essentially who he is. His name, in this case, is referring to Jesus Christ. What John is saying is, your sins are forgiven because of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. Things he's already told them already, but our salvation is as secure as Christ's name. Perhaps this is not a familiar way of speaking to us in our day and age, but essentially what he is saying is, Doing something for someone's name is the same as doing something for the sake of that person. And what a comfort that is to believers. He's already said in 1 John 2, verse 1, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We'll hear soon in 1 John 4, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What a comfort it is to know that our salvation comes from Jesus Christ, that our salvation is resting on Jesus Christ and not on ourselves. If it was resting on our own perfection, we would be sunk. John has already recognized this. He's already reminded his audience of this. But because we are resting on the name of Jesus Christ, we can have assurance. Even tonight, even as we deal with the different things that we have done and run them over in our heads, perhaps as we're lying awake at night, recognizing that we have failed to keep God's law, that our sins are forgiven for his name, that our salvation is as secure as Jesus Christ himself and his righteousness, his work for us. And so as John is beginning to prepare his 
readers, his audience, to hear the words, do not love the world or the things in the world, he wants to reorient them and to show them this is who we worship. The one who has forgiven our sins for Jesus' sake. The one who has come and done these things when we were nothing but sinners, when we had nothing that we could earn for him. This is the first blessing of forgiveness. But beyond this first blessing that the people of God have, John also wants to remind them of the second blessing, our second point this evening, knowledge. That these are people who know God. Notice in verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And at the end of verse 13, I write to you children because you know the father. And then again at the beginning of verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. We see very clearly, don't we, there, the fact that John likes to repeat things and go in these cycles of thought. And we can ask, what exactly is this knowledge? Well, we've already seen the word used before. Already in this epistle, John has gone on and talked about those who falsely claim to know God, to have not only this intellectual knowledge of him that he exists, but this personal, intimate knowledge, this relational knowledge, this experiential knowledge of him. And certainly there are many people in these congregations who are claiming to know God and yet walking away, claiming to know God and yet hating their brothers, claiming to know God and yet living in darkness and walking in darkness. What he's saying here is those who truly trust in Jesus Christ can say something different. That it's not just an empty claim that we truly know God. An empty claim that we know him who was from the beginning, which in this case probably means both Jesus and the Father, as Jesus is the one who reveals the Father to us. But that this is a real, a true knowledge. Not just an intellectual assent to these things and a knowledge of them, but a real trust, a real knowledge, a real relationship, a going back and forth. This is the real thing, knowing God through Christ. And he recognizes, as he'll say in a few chapters, that there are those whom he calls antichrists. Who come around and say things and denying things, for example, like that Jesus has come in the flesh. That they present themselves as those who know God and they present a different way to him. They present even a different God in the first place. And what he's saying here is, no matter how plausible their arguments may sound, no matter how eloquent they may be, no matter how intellectually serious they seem, that you know Jesus Christ, and because of that you know him who was from the beginning. That you know God, you know the Father. He says in 1 John two twenty four, Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. He is presenting this knowledge of God as a mark of mature Christianity. A mark of what it means to be a Christian who is trusting in God and growing in the grace by the power of the Holy Spirit. To know him is to have salvation. And notice, though, at the end of verse 13, he changes it a little bit. In verse, beginning of verse 13, beginning of verse 14, he says, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. He repeats the exact same thing, word for word, line for line. And if anything's worthy of being repeated, it's that. But what does he say at the end of verse 13? I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Now, keep in mind, he's already said that the children's sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And he uses a slightly different word in Greek for children here, but it seems to be having this emphasis that there's a relationship here from the children to the Father. And so it's not just that believers in Christ know God. 
just that we know him as creator, that we know him as Lord, that we know him as sustainer, the one who providentially upholds all things. But more than that, believers in Jesus Christ know God as Father. We are his children. We are those who have been adopted because of the work of his true son, Jesus Christ, and we are now adopted sons of God. Adopted children of God. We know our Father. This is our relationship. And so what is John calling us to here? What is he wanting us to do? How is he wanting us to respond to these things that he's reminding these people of and he's, he's telling them of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ of the fact that they have this God for them? Well, he wants us to remember a number of things, but most importantly in this section, he wants us to remember that God is our Father through Jesus Christ. And there are all kinds of people who come along, along today and try to tell you differently. We try to say that there is another way, another way than what you have heard, another way than what you have heard from the beginning. That there is another way to God, there is another mediator, there is another way even to make yourself your own mediator and to add somehow or another to what Christ has done as if that is not enough. John has said already, he will say it now, he will say it again before the letter is over. The only way to come to God as your father is through Jesus Christ. And if you're trusting in Jesus Christ this evening, let this be a word of comfort to you. Do you know everything that God is doing in life? No. Not at all. Do you know all the intellectual facts that the false teachers may come and tell you? No. Do you know perfectly the word that you have heard from God, the inspired scriptures of the Old and New Testament? Certainly not. But that all who know God through Jesus Christ know the creator of heaven and earth as their father. Know him as their redeemer. And this is who we worship. This is the one who has called us together, brothers and sisters, twice here on this Lord's Day. Who speaks to us in his word, who gives us grace in his word in the sacrament, who calls us to respond in gratitude for the grace that he showed to us when we were nothing but guilty. And we are nothing but sinners. He has forgiven our sins for Jesus' sake, and as a result, we can truly say that we know God. We can truly say that we have a knowledge of God the Father, that we are his children through Jesus Christ. And this leads us to our third point, the third blessing that John outlines for us this evening, the blessing of victory. This is the blessing that's especially um, seen in the case of the young men. He says in the middle of verse 13, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then the end of verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You see, it makes somewhat uh, a bit of sense, really, that he is identifying believers as fathers when it comes to knowledge, because that has to do with experience and wisdom and those sorts of things. Now when he comes to young men, the ones who are younger, he has this idea of victory, of striving, of victory over the enemy. And we know, of course, that generally speaking, that is how it goes, or at least how it should go, that when you're younger, you are stronger. You strive more in these kinds of areas in some ways in life. When you're older, God willing, you are wiser, you know more, you've come to understand more. 
but he is identifying all believers as those who know God, who have this knowledge and wisdom, and also as those who are strong and have the victory. Now we can ask, have victory over what? You have overcome the evil one, he says in verse 13. This is really a reference to Satan, to the devil at this point. And contrary to so many of the things that we hear today in our modern culture and society, attacking the idea of a personal devil and saying that this is not really something that's true, that we can't verify it empirically, that our senses cannot have any knowledge of it. John has no understanding of these things. John has no idea that just because you cannot see the presence physically of the evil one in the world, that he's not there. Of the accuser of the brethren. Of the one who tempts. John recognizes, just as he recognizes the reality of sin, the, recon- the reality of the devil. The fact that he is the enemy of God and those who are gods. That he is real, he is not to be trifled with. And we can say that much, but... He also does not want us to go around, running around, being terrified of these things, wondering how can we possibly overcome him? How can we possibly overcome the evil one? We know he's real. We know he's powerful. We know he has all these things on his side, all these weapons he can use. But what John is saying here in so many words is that he's nothing compared to the one that you know. He's nothing compared to the one who lived and died and rose again for you. The one who has forgiven your sins for his name's sake. The one who is your father in Jesus Christ. That the triune God has victory over the devil. As we see in 1 John, it's not just victory that keeps coming up as victory just over the devil himself. There's victory in a lot of senses in this book. He says in verse four, uh, chapter 4 and verse 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, meaning the Antichrist, those who have walked away and who have said false things about Christ. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Or in 1 John 5, 4 through 5, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is a victory not just over Satan, not just over the devil, but over the entire system that sets itself up against God. Over Satan, over those who follow him, over those who deny the faith, over those who bring sin and corruption, over the entire world system that set itself up against God. And what is this victory? How can we attain it? Well, John makes it clear it's through faith. That comes later in the epistle. And here, specifically, he makes it clear that the word is our strength. But we can ask at this point, what if we don't really feel like we've won the victory? And certainly, I cannot speak for each and every single person here. But I know in my own life, sometimes I wonder, how can it be true that the victory is won? How can I know that I shall overcome the evil one? How can I know, as John says, that... I have overcome the evil one. Because sometimes, some days, it seems like there's temptation and sin around every corner. That I'm struggling with these things, I'm fighting with them, but I'm not just steamrolling them. I'm not just having victory over them as if nothing is there opposing me. I'm guessing that's the experience of a lot of us in the Christian life. That we have an understanding, yes, that we still sin, and that sometimes it seems quite hopeless, that we can even begin to despair. So how can we know that we have 
victory. Well, not in ourselves. Faith comes, the word of God comes and brings us victory. Why? Because they bring us Christ himself. The one who has been victorious in our place. We can think of what Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 6. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. That's essentially what John is calling his listeners and readers to here. Jesus Christ has won the victory. That the one who is in us is greater than the one, uh, than the world. It's greater than the Antichrist. It's greater than the devil himself. That we have the triune God who has made himself available to us and for us. That we have God over us, certainly. That we have God for us in Christ. That we have God in us in the Holy Spirit indwelling us and strengthening us, even in the midst of this world that often seems as if it is the devil's for the taking. Where evil and sin seem to be running rampant. But faith overcomes because we hear the word, we abide in the word, and that is what brings us Jesus Christ. And so God is calling us here to rest in Christ's victory. To rest in the victory that he has won for his people. And to act as if that victory has been won. To act as if you have experienced all these things. That you know that the war, for all intents and purposes, is over, although there are still many battles to be fought. That Christ has overcome. That Christ is overcoming. That Christ will finally overcome. And you share in that. You participate in that because you have been forgiven of your sins for his name's sake. Because you know the one who is from the beginning. Because you know the Father through Jesus Christ. And you are his child. That is the blessing that John writes to us here. And we see specifically at the end of our passage that the word is our strength, as he says. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. He hasn't made this explicitly clear at this point, but soon he will. The strength of these young men, the strength of believers comes from internally uh, receiving the word as opposed to those who just heard it and then turned away, as opposed to the Antichrist who left. And all throughout Scripture we find it is the Word of God that makes us strong. We can think perhaps of Psalm 119.9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your Word. And we could multiply passage after passage upon that. That the Word of God is what gives us strength. And so as John is dealing with this situation, sensitively and pastorally, as he's dealing with those who have come in and have bothered the Church of God, to a very strong degree, who have shaken things up, who have led some astray. What he's telling them is that you are not seeking for anything other than what you already have. He's saying, I'm right to you because these things are true. Because you who are in Christ Jesus have your sins forgiven for his name's sake. Because you know him who is from the beginning. Because you know him as father through Jesus Christ. Because you have overcome the evil one because the word of God abides and dwells within you. And so if you're here this evening and you're tempted to look elsewhere. If you're tempted to think this is just too ordinary and too routine. This is not flashy enough. Keep in mind what John says. That there is nothing outside of Jesus Christ. There is nothing outside of faith in him. There is nothing outside of the word of God that we can find that is anywhere near as great as what we find in these things. 
that this is the vision of God, and he's calling us to let his word abide in us and to don't wonder how this victory happens. Don't go seeking after all these different things. Don't go trying to find some other solution to a problem that God has already taken care of. To listen to the word of God, to believe in the word of God, to rest in the one promised by the word of God who comes to you, who has won the victory, whose name is the one that ensures that your sins are forgiven. And this is the one we worship. So as we close and we recognize that John is about to tell us to not love the world or the things in the world, first he has reminded us of what we have in Jesus Christ, that we have everything. That we have the forgiveness of our sins. That we have the knowledge of God as Father. That we have victory over the evil one because the word of God dwells within these, within us. Within these young men who are the believers that he's writing to, who are even us here gathered this evening. And so what should we do? Revel in these blessings. Don't just say this as if it's just something you have to check off in the box. Okay, now we've checked this off and now we have to get into the real business of living the Christian life. This is the foundation of the Christian life and you never get away from this. You never get beyond this. You never get past this. And each and every single one of the ten things that John is going to tell his readers to do in between now and the end of the book, it's grounded in this. That God himself is glorious. That God himself is gracious to us in Jesus Christ. Even as we saw a baptism just a few moments ago, these promises are made to each and every single one of us in our baptism. They're held out to each and every single one who observes the baptism to believe in Jesus Christ and these things are true of you. No extras, no frills, no extreme things that are added on later. That if you trust in Jesus Christ, you internalize the word, you remember these things and trust in the one who gives them, that they are yours. And so this is why we should not love the world. Because God is better. And the gospel is far more glorious than anything the world or sin or the devil or the Antichrist can come and say, even if they say it in the most eloquent terms imaginable. And so Christian... As you go forth into this week, into the various vocations in your life, into school and home and work and wherever else it may be, remember that these things are true for you because of Jesus Christ. That this is the God we worship. This is the God who calls us today, who will call us again next Lord's Day. This is the God who has given us everything that we could possibly need in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the glorious gospel of your Son that shocks us, not only with its simplicity, but also its beauty and grandeur. We thank you, Lord, that we do have everything in him that we need, that we should look nowhere else but to you and to your word and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that your Spirit would continue to work in us as we know he has promised to do from the beginning, to continue to make us disciples, to remake us into the image of Christ. And we ask that you'll be with us this week and bring these things to our mind, not only this coming week, but throughout our entire Christian lives. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the one in whose name our sins are forgiven, the one who gives us knowledge of you through him, and the one who has given us the victory over the equal one. Amen.